Welcome to Ad Exchanger Talks, the podcast devoted to examining the issues and trends in advertising and marketing technology that matter most to you. You and Digital sponsored this podcast for one reason, because they want to make your team smarter. In this complex and fragmented environment, the smartest teams win. But the digital ad industry changes too fast and your internal subject matter experts are stretched too thin. Scaling industry learning and development is hard and inefficient. U of Digital is industry education as a service. They plug right in and begin educating your teams on the topics that will move the revenue needle. Clean rooms, CTV, identity, privacy, retail media, and much more. Some of the best companies in the business upskill their teams through U of Digital, such as Google, TikTok, Critio, Stack Adapt, GumGum, Freewheel, Comcast, NBCU, Quantcast, Lotomy, and more. Go to uof.digital, not.com.digital, and get smarter. This is Allison Schiff. You're listening to Ad Exchanger Talks. And fair warning, the beginning of this episode deals with two very important topics, bagels and barbecue. If you're at all hungry, maybe grab a snack before you start listening. But we're also going to talk about very important topics like helping diverse and multicultural publishers monetize and smoothing the way for advertisers to reach valuable, diverse audiences. My guest this week is Mark Walker, CEO, co-founder, and chairman of Direct Digital Holdings, a public holding company for ad tech and data-driven technology that does both. So let's get into it. Hey, Mark. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, how are you doing today? Uh, not too shabby. Thank you very much for asking. Um, so I, I know that you're in a hotel right now. You're traveling. Um, I get the feeling you probably travel a bunch, but you live in Houston, Texas, and you have your whole life, I believe. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. So based on exhaustive research, <laughs> by which I mean light Googling, I found uh, a stack of articles about how Texas barbecue is like the best kind of barbecue. And you can have good barbecue elsewhere, but it's just not really fair to compare. I mean, I personally haven't been to Texas, so I've never had the real deal. But like, what is it about Texas barbecue? Yeah, I have to tell you, when it comes to Texas barbecue, it's a combination of the the actual wood that is being used, plus a mixture of the sauce. Um, the combination of the sauce, as well as the type of wood that delivers the smoke flavor, makes it unique. I will say one of my favorite barbecue places in Houston, and I will call myself a barbecue connoisseur, okay, um, <laughs> is uh, Gatlin's Barbecue. Um, these guys uh, won the uh, Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo Barbecue World Championship Barbecue Cookoff, and uh, the the owner ended up, personal friend of mine ended up deciding on starting up his own restaurant. And I have to tell you, in Houston, Texas, it is by far the best barbecue that you could possibly ever have. So, um, it, it the 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 mixture of their sauce, the mixture of the wood, and the time that they keep it on the grill. Um, it literally just, it, it melts in your mouth. It's amazing. If the wood was transported elsewhere, 
and we got a real Texan and they knew what to do. <laughs> Could you still make Texas barbecue out of Texas? And I ask with this weird anecdote in mind that just popped into my head about how Katz's Deli, didn't they try to open in LA and they actually transported barrels of water to make the bread and it just obviously wasn't financially feasible. Right. Yeah, I have to say, I, I think there's something about the water, the humidity, all of those other um, factors, I think, plays in. It's similar to a bagel in New York for me. Uh, a bagel in New York, New York style pizza, it's only good if you get it here. There's some, you know, good substitutes, if you will, in, in other cities. But I have found something about the water, something about the humidity makes New York bagels unique. Very similar to when you go to Texas, Texas barbecue outside of Texas just doesn't taste the same. So you have to get it in Texas and specifically in Houston for you to really get the authentic flavor. So what I'm hearing is you have to eat bagels in Texas and barbecue in New York. <laughs> the other way around. Kidding, kidding. <laughs> exactly. Um, okay. <laughs> so I forgot that we're not on a culinary podcast. This is Ad Exchanger Talks. So <laughs> yeah. Direct Digital Holdings, you co-founded DDH in 2018. You were still the chief operating officer at Ebony Media at the time. And I do know that your experience at Ebony helped spark the idea for Direct Digital Holdings because you experienced firsthand, you know, what it's like to, you know, get by as a publisher. But, you know, Ebony is Ebony and it has name recognition. There are so many small multicultural and minority owned publishers that don't necessarily have the same clout or scale, um, but they obviously have a right to monetize um, and their audience is really valuable, which we'll talk about in a minute. And we're also going to talk about some of the challenges that they face other than, one, than the ones I mentioned. But First, what's it like to run an ad tech company, you know, based in Houston and not somewhere, I don't know, like obvious, like, you know, the bagel capital or San Francisco or Boston, <laughs> Chicago, LA, all those places. Yeah, I, I find it, um, it's actually been very unique. I think um, sometimes being a, um, you know, what you would call a fish out of water because Houston is really known for as the energy capital of the world. But what we have seen is the level of talent as well as the level of diversity um, that the city of Houston actually has, has lended itself very well for our culture and as a, as a good match. So um, we do have offices in Atlanta. We do have offices um, in New York and also in Austin, but it, it makes a lot of sense for the talent pool as well as the level of diversity for us to be based in Houston. And we have found it to work favorably for us. And a lot of the advertisers that you serve and maybe some of the publishers as well, like aren't necessarily, you know, based in capital cities. They're all over the place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, we, we primarily deal um, specifically on the buy side of our business, and, and we'll go into a little bit later the two sides of our business, um, with um, tier two, tier three media markets. And so um, we provide uh, programmatic digital services specifically for, um, I would say, your middle market companies that are five to 500 million in revenue that happen to be um, in those secondary media markets, such as Colorado Springs, Nashville, Tennessee, Knoxville, Tennessee, um, Tulsa, Oklahoma. We find that um, there's a lot of entrepreneurs that are looking for performative marketing, um, but there's just dearth of resources and services and access in those markets. And that's really one of the niches that we've been able to fill. 
So yeah, I think we should actually take a step back and talk a little bit about what's under the digital, um, sorry, direct digital holdings umbrella. So give it to me in a nutshell. What do you have? And also why bring it together into one company? Yeah, absolutely. So what we have at Direct Digital Holdings and what we do in in the most simplest form is we help companies buy and sell media and we leverage technology to do it with a keen focus on two primary markets with our buy side of our business, where we work directly with middle market companies that happen to be between five and five hundred million of revenue. We help them purchase media programmatically. And we use a host of um, different DSPs to do that work. Um, we Half of our business is working directly with um, middle market agencies. And then the other half is um, committed to working with direct brands. And we service annually roughly about 250 brands a year, um, a diff- 250 partners a year uh, with our buy side platform through two companies, Huddle Masses and Orange 142. The second side of our business is um, where we work directly with publishers. We have roughly about 30,000 publications and we run an SSP or supply side platform that actually helps those publishers sell media into the programmatic ecosystem through our platform, Colossus SSP. So the the beauty of having a buy-side platform um, like Huddle Masses and Orange 142 and then having a sell-side platform, Colossus, is the fact that in when you look at the programmatic value chain, many of times um, the buy-side does not work directly with the sell-side to actually optimize performance. And for the clients where we actually cross-trade both, we're able to optimize performance and deliver out, outsized results for them. So that's really one of the benefits that um, we have in having both of those um, sides of our business underneath one umbrella. And I think you'll start seeing, or you have been seeing, a lot of um, companies and some of our competitors moving in that direction um, by purchasing SSPs and combining them with the DSPs. And of course, with um, you know a laser focus on multicultural publishers. So, what are some of the monetization challenges, the main ones that stand in their way? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it was through the experience of working with Ebony Media that uh, when I was the COO, um, as you had pointed out, um, that we saw the opportunity. Um, that there was a, a, a little bit of a, a disconnect, if you will. Ebony was a um, you know very known brand, had been around for 75, 80 years, um, a staple in the African-American community for generations. Um, however, getting it connected into the programmatic ecosystem was difficult because the initial response was how many unique visitors do you have? Three to five million? Um, anything under you know, 5 million, the larger um, SSPs just weren't interested in. The fact that we had such a known brand was the only thing that gave us a a leg up in order to do that. In addition to that, um, what we saw when I was talking to many of my peers, they were having difficulty getting connected into those programmatic ecosystems um, and specifically into those SSPs because of the size. But we knew based upon the interaction, based upon the the stance that those brands have in their community, respective communities, that there was a lot of value 
in advertisers advertising in an authentic way on those properties. So we knew that if we focused in on getting the long tail connected into the programmatic ecosystem and had a supply side platform that could do that, it could actually deliver a lot of value to different brands in the marketplace and then also help um, many of those multicultural publishers monetize the level of traffic that they have in the way that the industry was actually moving. So in a way, it's quality over quantity, except it's not really quality over quantity. It's quantity too. I mean, the scale might be distributed across across lots of different publishers, but we're talking about an enormous portion of the population. You know, it, it, I kind of feel like the term minority doesn't really apply. No, you're you're absolutely right, and I'm and I'm glad you brought up that point. Um, Forty, based upon the last census, forty percent of the United States um, identifies uh, population identifies themselves as African American, Asian American, Hispanic American, and then LBGTQ. So when you're talking about forty percent of the U.S. population. Um, by just focusing your media buys on general market, you end up missing, you know, a 40% of the marketplace in speaking to those audiences in an authentic way. And that's where the value is for working with direct digital holdings. So let's talk a little bit about some research that direct digital holdings just put out. Um, really interesting findings. So, and very fresh off the presses, just came out this week. Absolutely. And it highlights that investing, as you were just saying, like investing in diverse media and diverse communities is not just a business opportunity. I mean, if brands aren't making that effort, they're actually, they're losing out, like they're losing revenue and they might actually be losing some respect amongst their consumers. So one finding I thought was really telling is that the majority of multicultural consumers that you surveyed, so like nearly 90%, said that they took an action because a company invested in their community. And that includes, you know, something like boosting a brand on social media, like, okay, you know, like positive word of mouth, which is great, but like even switching away, like from a competitive brand that doesn't invest in their community in a real way, which I think is pretty remarkable because that's very real. That's very like, tangible. So, you know, brands talk about authenticity. They talk about making equitable investments. But I mean, with that finding in mind, do you think that they like realize how concrete of an impact like actually walking the walk has? You, you know, I, I actually, my assumption is that they don't. And I think that is really one of the interesting points that the research has brought to light. One, I think uh, the most important piece is, yes, um, those audiences and those communities do notice when a brand wants to communicate with them in an authentic way. And I think it was um, eight out of 10 said that. The most fascinating part was that four out of 10 came back and said when they notice that a brand doesn't um, invest media into their community, then they actually look for the competitor to do business with. And to me, that was probably the most um, enlightening part of the study was not just the positive of if you do communicate, but the inverse also happens when you don't make those type of investments. And I think what it will have and the impact that I'm hoping that um, this study will highlight to many of the brands is that your inaction has negative action, which I think is a new concept that this uh, this research has brought to the marketplace. 
because yeah, you could probably re- you know reach these same audiences when they're on Instagram or watching American Idol or whatever, like some really mainstream media. Um, but people seem to really reward brands that make you know the extra effort to support you know either smaller publishers or you know publishers that aren't necessarily in the mainstream but that are important to them. Yeah, I, I think it's really, um, I think what it highlights is many of these communities look at, I'm just going to point out, Times of India. So it's a brand many people don't probably are aware of, but they have 7 million unique visitors. And they are roughly the New York Times for the Indian immigrant community that comes to the United States. When you have your brand associated with the Times of India, it shows that you know the community. It shows that you're a part of the community. It shows that you're engaged with the community. And I think what this study has highlighted for many brands is that there's value in that. And more so, those audiences and those communities reward you for noticing them. And so I think that's the big takeaway for many brands is to understand eight out of 10, um, eight out of 10 um, of those audiences notice, but even more so four out of 10 will immediately take action just by your participation. And if you were to tell me I could get 40% of a market um, just by talking to them, then you best believe um, from my previous experience of sitting on the marketing side um, and the brand side of managing a multi-million dollar budget, I would definitely look at making those investments. And like you were saying, right, eight out of 10, you know, consumers feel like positively if brands live up to their promises, but it is also true the opposite way. Like eight in 10 feel negatively about brands that don't. I mean, that feels that feels like a wake up call if I have ever heard one, because it's not just like don't it's not just don't do anything and be OK. It's um, a potentially negative impact of not getting it right. No, that's exactly correct. And I think, I do think, like you said, it is a wake up call for many of these brands to understand that when, you know, when times get tight um, and there's a recession and you start thinking about budget cuts, um, I think the historical way of looking at it was cutting the multicultural budget because it felt like it had the least amount of impact. I think in this day and age with 40% of the U.S. population being multicultural and understanding that eight out of 10 actually notice when you don't advertise, I think it has some level of difficulty and and negative ramifications when you look at not spreading your investments across all of the platforms and all of the communities proportionately. It's probably also during um, you know, troubling economic times, easier to cut a multicultural budget because it's like off to the side, right? It was just like some maybe experimental budget or, you know, it was just something off to the side as opposed to a regular part of the media plan. So you just like lob it off because it's not integrated. No, that's right. And I think that's, um, I would say that's probably, um, you know, with what we're hearing from some of the partners and the brands that we work with, that was definitely how I would say the, you know, last um, 
marketing cycle actually looked at the budget. I think what you're starting to see today is that transition to where um, you're hearing people talk about this is the growth marketplace. Um, advertising and investing with multicultural audiences in an authentic way um, is the way that our brands are continue to grow market share and capture new market share in the immediate future. So I think um, this next iteration of marketing that we're actually about to see through this next cycle, um, I'm hoping you're going to see a, a shift, a seismic shift in how people think about budgets, budget allocations, and also how they're starting to invest more and more consistently versus doing, I'm going to say, the previous cycle of the lob-off approach of multicultural budgets just because it felt like it was a standoff on its own. So one more question before we hit our sponsor break. What about pricing? Like how expensive is multicultural media compared to say a mainstream buy? And, you know, if it's more affordable, that would be an argument in favor of doing it, especially during, you know, an an economic downturn. And it's a great way to, well, like speak to your audience properly, but, you know, also, you know, gain market share at a time when a lot of people are pulling back. Yeah, I think, I think what you're seeing right now is I don't, I I personally believe that you're seeing just as competitive rates as if you advertise um, on your general market websites as you would within your multicultural websites. Um, Depending on some of the popular sites, you definitely see a little bit more competition for, um, for CPMs. But all in all, I would say you actually see very comparable and competitive uh, pricing in comparison to what you would see um, in the general market pricing, specifically for CPM. So the value is there. I think what you will also find, because you're talking to a concentrated audience in a unique and authentic way, what I what we have seen is you actually get better results because the push to buy becomes a little bit more effective based upon what you've seen in the study that if you do advertise with these multicultural publications in an authentic way, then you see more favorable and more of a response than if you go with just general market advertising. So I think the uniqueness and the quantity and the quality is really what gives you the value in working directly with multicultural publications. All right. Fair enough. And an impassioned plea. Um, So we're going to hit our sponsor break. And when we're back, we'll talk a little bit more about the concept of authenticity and also, I guess, celebrate Direct Digital Holdings' one-year anniversary as a public company. Uh, So stick with us. This is Ad Exchanger Executive Editor Sarah Sluice, and I have with me Miles Younger, Head of Innovation and Insights at U of Digital, our sponsor this month. Hi, Miles. Hey, Sarah. Thanks for having me. So, why can't someone just Google this stuff or learn it through osmosis? So, we run into this all the time. Uh, you know, just Google it can be a very seductive solution because, you know, it's free, it's easy, it's fast. But in our experience, it's one of these cases where there's no free lunch because just Google it runs into two big issues. One, 
not everybody's motivated to self-educate. So you end up with uh, people in an organization at different knowledge levels. And two, the quality of the content out there varies a lot. And there isn't like, uh, you know, a single authoritative educational resource in the ad tech space. So, you know, when you tell people to just Google it, you end up with really disparate knowledge levels in an org, and then it becomes difficult to move the needle on, you know, revenue goals. And so just Google, it seems, you know, harmless, but we see it having pretty big downstream impacts uh, at organizations. In what ways will getting smarter help our listeners' businesses? So, you know, our take on this is that being smarter is about having the knowledge, the context, and the confidence to be more consultative with clients. So I can, I can give, uh, you know, a really high level example. So, you know, right now the entire industry is dealing with privacy and death of the cookie. And so, you know, when you're out there selling your ad tech mousetrap and you are unable to put it into uh, this urgent context around the death of the cookie, when you're talking to clients, uh, you know, you're going to have difficulty uh, really selling in big ideas to those clients. And you've got competitors out there who have done their homework on industry trends, uh, you know, and, and they're going to come in with better solutions and they're going to win. And so, uh, you know, being smarter basically helps you be more consultative, which gives you an edge winning deals. What are the top three areas people are asking for education? So U of Digital educates on a lot of different topics, but, uh, you know, Three of the top ones we're hearing right now are clean rooms, CTV, and identity. So, uh, you know, with clean rooms, uh, you know, uh, everybody's pretty much taking death of the cookie as a given, but they're unclear on how alternatives work. And more specific to that, they're unclear on how clean rooms work. And a lot of clients uh, absolutely need uh, uh, their partners and their vendors to be able to talk about clean rooms in order to move forward. Uh, with identity, um, it's kind of a twofold problem. Firstly, uh, a lot of folks in the space don't understand how post cookie identity solutions work or even if they work. And secondly, there's a lot of identity solutions out there right now, and it's difficult to distinguish between them. Uh, CTV is super interesting. Uh, a lot of people in uh, catch up mode right now, they don't know what they do know, and they don't know what they don't know because CTV isn't like linear or cable TV that we all grew up with, but it's also not like classic uh, programmatic digital advertising either. Uh, and, but you know, everybody knows that it's this huge opportunity. Uh, and so we're seeing a ton of demand to get teams upskilled fast so they can go after it. So clean rooms, CTV and identity are the hot topics. That's right. Thank you for joining us, Miles. And thanks to our sponsor, U of Digital. Okay, and we're back. I do have a question on the concept of authenticity. Obviously, brands that are authentic, uh, which I, I would like to define, if you don't mind, are rewarded. So when we're talking about authenticity, what does that mean, like, really, truly? I do feel like that word gets tossed around. And then also, if you're a brand that attempts authenticity, but it's a ham-fisted attempt, is there like any kind of tolerance for messing up and maybe there's a threshold that you can't cross 
But but yeah, what is authenticity? And you know, can you mess up and uh, be forgiven and do better next time? Yeah, absolutely. Authenticity. When when I think about authenticity specifically, um, when it comes to cultural nuances or with the brand, it's really understanding some of the basics. Um, of that community and things that might just be um, nuanced. I mean, for myself, I'm African-American. And one of the things that we will talk about is how, um, you know, being African-American, you have a certain level of experiences that you probably have gone through. But then culturally, depending on what part of the country you were born in or raised, there are nuances to that. So it's understanding um, those nuances and those small cultural references that might be unique to certain regions or to certain um cultures across their community. And that's one of the things that I think brands always can do better of. And the only way that I think you can maintain your brand to have some level of authenticity is by having representation across the board um, inside of the rooms that are making the decisions. And so what we try to do as a company um, is live with that level of authenticity throughout our entire company. Because um, if you look at our board of directors, if you look at our leadership, and if you look at our executive team, we're actually 60% uh, minority. Um, And then um, the level of female and male um, employees and leadership we have is roughly 50-50, if not 60-40. So you'll see representation and authenticity as an entire company. And we think what it helps deliver is a better product in the long run for the clients and partners that we work with. So I guess that answers the second part of the question about messing up. I mean, you're going to mess up less if you have invited the right people into the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that is the area that I think all companies could do better with is when you have the right people in the room and you have diversity in the room, it it allows each person to actually speak up and represent and ensure that you're bringing or being careful of those cultural nuances that you might not be aware of. And we all have, um, we all, you know, have those experiences. It's just making sure you have the right person in the room and that person's empowered to speak up in order to make sure that um, you can speak in an authentic way as a brand. Person, and I really, I feel like persons, right? Because if you are the one person at the table and then everyone's head is on a swivel and they like look to you and they're like, is this okay with your community? And you like nod and I guess you speak for everyone or you might not feel all that empowered because you're like a token, you know, and like that doesn't feel right either. No, so true. So true. You can tell when, when you have someone in the room or if you have one person in the room and they're supposed to be the voice of the entire community, that's never an authentic way um, to, to have that level of communication, nor will that be reflected in the brand. It's having it in the culture. It's having multiple people in the room that can actually speak with with um, and be empowered to speak and share the the honest truth about the different cultural nuances and the cultural references um, in order to ensure that these brands are able to um, communicate in an authentic way. And you're, you're absolutely right. It is having a multiple people and having empowerment across the board to speak up. And if you have, you know, the right people in the room, you won't sell Juneteenth ice cream, for example. (laughs) Yeah, that is a true point. And and someone, if they're empowered enough, can say, 
I don't think this is the best approach for us to be supportive of that community. You're putting yeah, it mildly, that is absolutely Mark. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> that was unfortunate. Yeah, it was very unfortunate. Absolutely. Um, so we were, you know, speaking. I think a little broadly now. I want to get into the weeds. Talk about programmatic and diversity, and you know how difficult it is or isn't for advertisers to make programmatic buys that support diverse publishers. Because you spoke before the break about the challenge, um, you know, at being at Ebony Media, just getting set up. And Ebony is a larger publisher. Smaller publishers definitely have, you know, the same challenges and more. But I want to look at it from the buy side perspective. I've spoken to people at agencies who their entire job is to help brands spend more with diverse publishers of all sizes, small, mid-size, multicultural publishers. But doing that programmatically just Really, it isn't easy yet. Not that there's an easy button for anything necessarily, but it's pretty much just like a private marketplace deal thing, largely. Um, you know, and a lot of smaller publishers are just still figuring it out, and so are buyers. Um, and buyers, of course, like you were just saying, need to change their perspective a little bit in terms of what they consider to be, you know, a, a publisher that should be on their media plan. So, yeah, and like working with publishers that aren't as scaled and might need shorter payment terms. But with all of that as the backdrop, what would you say are the top few things that have to happen to like really unlock multicultural supply in a, in a big way, programmatically? Yeah, absolutely. And that was one of the reasons why we, we got into business with Colossus, because we knew what those hurdles are. And I think you touched on many of those points. One, I mean, for some of the um, smaller brands, if you will, or the long tail publishers um, that are multicultural or diversity focused, um, some of them have technical hurdles that they're trying to get through. And we felt like um, we're willing to make the time, energy and effort of investing six months working side by side with many of these brands in order to get them connected into the ecosystem. That's number one. Number two goes back to the payment term piece. Uh, One of the things and one of the reasons why we decided to go public was to ensure that we had enough capital and access to the capital markets to ensure that we can always satisfy the financial requirements for these publishers in order to make sure um, that we make it a smooth process for our buyers on the other side of um, the value chain. Um, The third issue that I've seen, and um, this is one of the pieces of working with the agencies, um, is a lot of times uh, many of the holding company agencies have already pre-negotiated deals um, with infrastructure providers. And I would put Colossus and DDH and what we do as part of that infrastructure. It's helping overcome those hurdles and all of the IT support components and making sure that your server farm is, you know, up to code and and processes are are actually efficient enough to handle a large amount of spend. Um, With the amount of size that we have, we, we have roughly about 130 to 135 billion monthly impressions underneath us that are generally market as well as multicultural with about 20% of that being multicultural focused um, we are able to provide a level of scale that you have not seen in the marketplace that is multicultural focus and in addition to that the fact that myself and my business partner own 80% of direct digital holdings with the other 20% owned by the general public and the stock that we sold um, just doing business with us allows you to actually 
deal with the programmatic marketplace at scale. So I think one of the things that um, a lot of brands um, maybe have struggled with is finding a partner that has the technical the financial, as also the know-how to actually help bring this marketplace, specifically multicultural publishers, into the programmatic ecosystem. And we've been for the last four years kind of heads down focused on working. And so I think a lot of brands are starting to discover us and want to work with us so that they are able to satisfy their uh, DE&I and multicultural reach component at scale by working directly with us. And are you finding, um, and maybe the answer is not yet, that it's not just about fulfilling DEI goals, but it's becoming, you know, more of a regular part of the media plan, investing in multicultural publishers, or is it still still kind of a little off to the side? We're starting to see more and more um, brands say, "I want to achieve X to reach this marketplace," which is totally different than how. Um, the conversation was, I would say, four years ago when we first got started, when multicultural was off on the, or five years ago, when multicultural was off on the side. I am starting to hear more and more brands say, hey, we know that this market is growing. We're seeing the population um, of these audiences coming into our stores and coming and in, interacting with our brands. We need to figure out how do we reach more of them at scale? And we're starting to see more and more brands actually think about their larger component of their buy being targeted to reaching those, what they're calling growth audiences to try to continue to grow market share. And that's been the the most favorable thing we've seen in the marketplace in the, in the near future. So I, I read a past interview with you where you described other SSPs like Pubmatic and Magnite as like frenemies rather than purely rivals. So like as frenemies, I mean, I would define a frenemy as, you know, you, uh, you work together, but it's like you still compete. So yeah. how do you work together? And then how does DDH compete with those like much larger companies? I mean, you're all public, but, you know, they, they have you know, just uh, a longer history in the market. Yeah, we, you know, we find ourselves because we have a buy side platform and a sell side platform. With some of our buy side customers, we leverage Colossus. Um, We actually cross trade into Colossus, but then we also do business uh, with Magnite and Pubmatic and other SSPs to try to reach audiences specifically for our buy side um, customers. And then on the sell side of our business, we actually compete um, side by side with Magnite and Pubmatic. And um, we think we have a very unique offering because we have a significant amount of general market supply that uh, we're bringing into the programmatic ecosystem. But then we also have that high concentration of multicultural audiences that we're bringing um, into the ecosystem as well for that long tail. And so therefore, uh, we compete um, with our sell side platform. So because we sit on both sides with our buy side platform, we leverage and use Pubmatic and Magnite to reach audiences as well as Colossus. But then on our sell side platform with Colossus SSP, we actually compete directly against them. And uh, we think there's enough room and enough spin in the marketplace um, for us all to uh, thrive and win. So we're, we're excited about that. And that's one of the reasons why you hear me refer to them as frenemies. I mean, it's classic in ad tech, right? I mean, everyone's 
friends and also <laughs> competitors. I mean, that's just the nature of this like very, um, you know, kind of labyrinthian, super integrated beast that ad tech has become. That's been the beauty of it is, um, is exactly you, you find yourself um, having the greatest friends and allies, and then you also see each other competing um, in different spaces. But that's what makes it a, a very impactful and unique space to be in. I haven't heard anyone describe the intricacies of ad tech as beautiful before. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, I get uh, excited about my ad tech. <laughs> I mean, I work at Ad Exchanger. I get it. Um, so it has happy birthday in a way, because it's been a year since Direct Digital Holdings went public. I'm actually just the ninth Black-owned company to IPO, I believe. Is that right? That's correct. That's correct. Um, is that ever? It is. And we went back and did a significant amount of research. We went all the way to the 1980s um, and had our um, multiple groups look at it. And yeah, it's um, the ninth Black-owned um, ad tech company to actually go, I mean, ninth Black-owned company to go public um, and actually trade it on the on a stock exchange, a major stock exchange. So um, it's exciting for the company and um, it's somewhat unfortunate that we are the ninth. You would have assumed it would have been thousands, but um, but we're here. And so we're, we're happy to, to have achieved that, but uh, we definitely got a lot more room to grow. What motivated the move to go public? Because uh, 2020 was a super weird year, sure. 2021 was pretty weird too. Last year was weird as hell. This year is weird. I mean, it's a big move. The market is crazy, like not just now, but like going back. So like, why do it? You, you know, we, a couple of reasons. One, we knew that um, in working with brands and wanting to work with brands at the scale um, that we want to work with um, some of the largest Fortune 500 advertisers out in the marketplace, we knew credibility was important. And giving them a place where their media investments, um, they knew we would be around. Our financials are all public. And the fact that we have the finance, the capability of raising capital, um, those were the primary reasons um, that we went decided to go public when we did, because we knew that for brands to actually make an impact and do the level of an media investing that they would to reach 40% of the market, it would take a publicly traded company to do that. And so when my business partner and I, Keith Smith, looked at actually um, going down that path, that's what we had in mind. And that was one of the reasons why we did it last year, even though it had to have been the most inopportune time to ever go public. Um, <laughs> but but we felt like um, we felt like it actually put us in a space of credibility, but then even more so in the space of having the financial wherewithal to manage the media investments that we're seeing coming through the marketplace today. As a newly public company, have you gotten used to the terminology like not making forward looking statements or whatever? <laughs> Absolutely, I, my lawyers, uh, the the lawyers for the for the company have definitely trained us well and made sure you know you open up. Hey, I can't give forward looking guidance. I can't answer that question. So yeah, it's uh, definitely been a dance and one we had to quickly learn within the last year. 
do you ever use it on your kids? You know, if they're like, can I have this toy or something? You're like, I cannot make forward looking statements. <laughs> exactly. You find yourself going into CEO speak and one of my board members, they, uh, they cracked a joke. They said, Oh, you definitely got the CEO speak down now. So it's been a, it's definitely been a learning process. And uh, yeah, the kids and the family definitely uh, <laughs> get tired of hearing it at home. So to bring us home, um, since we're nearly out of time, I thought you could leave us with like one or two things that you wish buyers would know or do or like stop doing. Basically, like if you could somehow get into the ear of every buyer and like change some of their perceptions or how they typically approach multicultural buys, like what would those things be if you could just magically speak to all of them at once and disabuse them of some things? Yeah, I would say there's two two things that I would probably remind them of. Number one, um, anytime you're working with a media partner, um, whether it's us or whether it's any I would say, and how we like to approach the business, we go into it in partnership. So to us, it's not a binary decision of did the partnership work or not, yes or no. It takes both groups um, willing to communicate. And so when you're looking at programmatic media buying and the way that the value chain works, a lot of people don't know that there's a lot of optimization we can do on the back end uh, with the supply and working directly with our publishers. And I I would implore brands and I would implore media buyers to not just cut, but look at how do we optimize by passing information back and forth. Um, That's one. And then the second piece is focus multicultural with a lens of return on investment. It's and not on a, a, a term of supporting. Because truthfully, if we look at it in partnership and look at it with ROI, you're gonna see the growth and the value there by making those type of investments. And that is really what the study that we came out with is really showing and pointing out in the consumer's own words. And so if it's um, if I were to leave brands with two things, going into a media investments in a spirit of partnership and in optimization, and then also with a major focus on ROI and performance. And I think those two things will really um, change the trajectory of our space in the industry. Yeah, it has a good effect on the bottom line, right? Absolutely. So um, our listeners should know that Mark and I were recording like roughly at lunchtime. So I will now release you to get bagels or barbecue (laughs) or whatever (laughs) you want. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. U of Digital is sponsoring Ad Exchanger's podcast for one reason, because they want to make your team smarter. In this complex and fragmented environment, the smartest teams win. Enter U of Digital, which is industry education as a service. They plug right in and educate your teams on the topics that will move the revenue needle. Some of the best companies in the business upskill their teams through U of Digital, such as Google, TikTok, NBC Universal, Critio, Quantcast, and more. Go to uof.digital, not .com, .digital, and get smarter.